0: Hey everyone, I'm Sally Abed. I'm Dina Kraft. I'm a Palestinian activist in Israel. And I'm a Jewish-Israeli journalist. This is Groundwork. A podcast about Palestinians and Israelis refusing to accept the status quo and working to change it.
1: Groundwork is a joint production of New Israel Fund and the Alliance for Middle East Peace.
0: Before we get into today's episode, we just want to quickly welcome our new listeners. And we want to recommend, after you listen to this episode, of course, that you listen to our older ones, too.
1: Sometimes in the intro, we talk about current events in the news. But the main story in each episode is about issues that are certainly still relevant as of this recording. In fact, we think it will be interesting and extremely important for years to come. So please do check them out. Okay, let's get to today's story.
0: So today we're telling a story about Wasim al-Masri, Wasim works at the Alliance for Middle East Peace, one of the partners of our show, but we're doing something a little different than our normal episodes. We're not actually focusing on activism, at least not explicitly. In the news over recent decades, we've all heard
1: names of events and wars that marked pivotal moments in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, like the Lebanon War, the Oslo Accords, Hamas, winning control over Gaza, the 2014 Gaza War, Wasim didn't experience them as headlines,
0: though. He lived them. He was shaped by them. Our story follows Wasim in his search for belonging in an imperfect homeland, and in his attempts to navigate the complexities of his own Palestinian identity. We travel with him from a refugee camp in Syria to a small town in Gaza, and then into the West Bank.
1: Before we start, just a few things to keep in mind. One. Wassim pronounces Gaza a couple different ways. Gaza, like we say in English, and also Ghazi, as it's pronounced in Arabic.
0: And two, this story has some graphic descriptions of war. So please consider this before listening. As always, Dina and I will be back at the end of the show
1: to reflect on the piece. First, Yoshi Fields, one of the creators of our show, has the story.
2: My name is Wasim al-Masri. I am 40 years old. I'm a third-generation refugee.
3: Wasim grew up knowing Gaza only from stories and photographs. He grew up in a refugee camp in Syria.
2: I remember first time I met my granddad, he came to Syria. He used to bring this album, you know, and just look at the photos.
3: Wasim was about seven at the time. In his grandfather's book, There were pictures of the Mediterranean Sea, of the city, of
2: the lemon trees, the orange trees.
3: And there were photos his grandfather showed him of his cousins, his uncles and aunts, people he didn't know. In the camp, he had no family other than his parents and siblings. But on the pages were countless smiling faces, faces that looked a lot like his. Almost 200 miles away was a land near the sea where much of his family lived, a place his father always told him they belonged. But Wasim had no reason to think he'd ever see it for himself. Politics and war have always drastically shaped the contours of Wasim's life, even before he was born. That's how he ended up in Syria. His family history is complicated, but in short, it starts with his grandfather, who was displaced from his village during the 1948 war between Israel and its Arab neighbors. He ended up in northern Gaza. Years later, Wasim's father got a job in Lebanon. That's where Wasim was born, Lebanon, 1982. Then, that same year, Israel invaded Lebanon. Wasim's parents, looking for a safe place to raise their family, wanted to return to Gaza, but it wasn't an option. They didn't have the proper documentation Israel required. Instead, they fled to a refugee camp in Syria.
2: The Armuk refugee camp. A smaller section of it actually called Palestine Refugee Camp.
3: It's just a very crammed
2: uh, buildings, narrow streets.
3: For Wasim, it wasn't all bad. He remembers playing chess with his dad, watching cartoons with friends and walking through the streets.
2: There's a lot of street vendors. I loved street vendors back then, um, especially ones who sold beans. Yeah, I ate too much beans.
3: This was where Wasim spent most of his childhood, eating beans and watching TV with the children of other refugees. And this is where his grandfather visited them, all the way from Gaza, with his big photo album. Those pictures were precious to him. They were how Wasim would know where his people came from. The camp wasn't ever home, and his parents didn't see a future there. Still, Gaza, where most of his family lived, was occupied by Israel, who they saw as the enemy. Did you know, okay,
2: we're gonna leave here at some point? I was surrounded by a lot of refugee kids. I never thought, you know, at some point we're gonna go back to Gaza. You're not in a position as a refugee to make a lot of choices, right? This is what you're given.
3: But that all changed when Wasim was 12. He remembers seeing his mom get off the phone, disoriented, and tell him they were going to Gaza. The Oslo Accords, a peace agreement between Israel and the Palestinian leadership, had just been signed.
1: I dare to pledge what for so long seemed difficult even to imagine, that the security of the Israeli people will be reconciled with the hopes of the Palestinian people This brave gamble that the future can be better
3: than the past must endure. Sadly, the peace that Oslo promised did not endure. But in that brief window of hope, some Palestinian refugees, specifically those connected to the newly formed Palestinian government, were able to return. Wasim's father knew people in that government and was planning on getting a job there. But Wasim mostly felt scared. He said goodbye to his friends in the refugee camp. None of them had gotten permission to go back. Got into the van with his family and started the long journey. Even though Wasim was geographically only a few hours drive from Gaza, the family couldn't go through Israel. Instead, they drove to Jordan, flew to Cairo, and took a taxi across the Sinai Peninsula to the border with Gaza. The border was controlled by Israel.
2: That was the first time that I've seen an Israeli, a man in uniform with a gun. I was terrified. I think the image that you built about the enemy in our context is basically the image that I saw.
3: The soldier looked down at him, and in Hebrew, which Wasim did not know, spoke to him.
2: I remember these words very well. He says, Which I learned after it means, hey kid, come here.
3: Other than that soldier and those four words, it's all a blur in his memory now shuffling paper, the fearful looks of other refugees waiting in line. And then, all of a sudden, he was being waved through.
2: All this time, it didn't hit me until we started driving to to the city where my father was born, to the small uh, city called Beit Hanun. And we get to this area, there's like hundreds of people on the street. Everybody, you know, kissing me, hugging me, welcoming me home.
3: It took him a moment to realize that these strangers were his family, the ones he had seen all those years back in his grandfather's photo album.
2: This is start becoming real, you know. You start to realize, wow, you have a family here, this massive family.
3: In fact, there was even a street named after them.
2: Al Masri Street. This is when I start to realize that we have roads, which is something you miss as a refugee. This is my home, you know. Ghazi is my home. My memories of the time that I spent there are incredible. Um, my father' family come from a construction background, so most of my uncles worked in construction. They built a new house for us. I remember like coming there and seeing the progress every day. Um, you know, all of them they were like tiling, they were putting you know bricks, and day by day you see the progress until it was built. They built our house. That's very special.
3: He quickly made friends. They would walk to school early to play soccer and would stay late together, reading Agatha Christie novels in Arabic. And they sometimes found themselves getting into a bit of innocent trouble, the way kids often do.
2: We used to jump off the fence to steal and pick some of the strawberries at one of the agriculture colleges nearby and being chased by uh, the janitor.
3: He was living the dream of any refugee, to be at home and to belong to a place. He was in love with all of it, his big boisterous family, the sea, the strawberries, even the spicy food.
2: If it's not spicy,
3: it's not ghazi. For the next decade or so, Wasim lived pretty happily in Gaza. During this time, was the political situation a big part of your identity or?
2: No, I never. The 90s were amazing time. Gaza was thriving on all these tourism. People were coming from the West Bank to visit. Trendy restaurants are, you know, being built and Gaza was just blooming with life. I think everybody was like they want to come and live in Gaza and work in Gaza. Yeah.
3: It's sort of sad.
2: It is sad, given the context of things, of course, it's sad.
0: heavy fighting across the Gaza Strip today. The latest battles between rival Palestinian factions, Fatah and Hamas, have left more than 20 people dead in the last three days.
3: Hulks of burned out. Buses and cars litter main roadways in Gaza City. In 2006, Hamas, which Israel, the U.S., and many other countries considered a terrorist organization, won the democratic election over the long-time ruling party, Fatah. Instead of a peaceful changing of power, Tensions between Hamas and Fatah deteriorated into violence.
2: War was on the streets, where people were using automatic weapons and shooting at each other.
3: Wasim had a job at the Red Cross at the time. He was in love and had just gotten engaged. But wedding planning would have to wait. Everything would have to wait.
2: My father back then worked in a very high position at the Palestinian intelligence.
3: Wasim's father was a target of Hamas. He was working closely with the Fatah political party at the time.
2: My dad took a bunker at the intelligence office in Gaza.
3: With his dad hiding out, Wasim's family became targets.
2: One of my uncles and two cousins were shot dead on the street by Hamas. I was running on the street with my little brother, who was like eight years younger than me. Um, and just jumping from one house to another, trying to hide.
3: His fiancé's family ended up taking him and his brother in. They didn't go outside for a week. When things did calm down, they finally went home. But their house had been ransacked, probably by Hamas.
2: A lot of my family stuff were just all over the street. Family photos, my old Game Boy, you know, a few books, some of my clothes.
3: He was home... But everything around him had changed. Gaza had changed.
2: It was scary because a lot of young people, Fatah supporters, they were shot in their legs. And what I remember is that because of how many individuals were coming forward, lost a limb after that takeover, the Red Cross had to open an own department for prosthetics um, and bring experts from the outside for rehabilitation was quite uh, the scene. I mean, I don't know how to describe it, to be honest.
3: All of Gaza was in shock, and Palestinian leadership had splintered. Fatah and the Palestinian Authority remained in power in the West Bank. In Gaza, Hamas was firmly in control. Wasim's father, like many of the surviving officials working with Fatah and the Palestinian Authority, had to sneak out of Gaza. During that time, Israel briefly opened their borders to some officials so they could cross into the West Bank, where they'd be safe. Wasim's dad managed to go. Wasim's brother went as well. Eventually, Wasim's mother would join them too. But Wasim didn't want to leave. He had a good job. His grandparents still lived in Gaza. So did his fiance's family. With the fighting over, he hoped Gaza would return closer to the lively and warm place he had come to love. Most of all, Gaza was the only place he felt at home, and he wasn't going to give up on that. And so he stayed. But with Hamas in power, the world seemed to close all their doors to Gaza.
2: When Hamas won the elections, everything shut down. The Egyptians shut down the borders, the Israelis shut down the borders. Not that I agree with Hamas ideology, but the, the West keep preaching us about democracy, and when democracy happens, no, no one is happy with it.
3: A year later, Wasim finally had his wedding in Gaza. They rented out a small reception hall. But it was just as much a moment of mourning as a celebration, a reminder of who wasn't there, like most of his immediate family now in the West Bank or his cousins and uncle who had been killed in the fighting. And even a wedding was not immune to the kinds of shortages that everyone in Gaza had been suffering through since Hamas came to power.
2: On my wedding day, there was no fuel. I paid so much money for like 10 liters or 20 liters of fuel so I could cruise in my car, you know, uh, with my wife by the beach on our wedding day. It cost me like a small fortune. It was a pretty sad wedding in the, in the standards of Gaza and I didn't have one of these large parties where my friends and I danced on the street, Um, but it was a wedding.
3: Despite the tragedies of the past year, Wasim was still hopeful. His wife became pregnant, and a year after the wedding, they welcomed a baby girl, Yumna. Wasim and his wife had spent the pregnancy dreaming of her arrival, imagining walking together with their new baby along the seashore and showing her the street with her namesake. But they wouldn't even have three days of family life before war would strike.
2: Israel has launched its bloodiest attack on the Gaza Strip in decades in retaliation for rocket fire from the Hamas-controlled territory. Gaza's been bombarded by Israeli airstrikes, killing over I think the war people. changed everything. What happened? <laughs> Do you mind if I take a two-minute break? Yeah, Just a smoke. I need no, a smoke? Of course,
3: of course. I'll use the well-deserved smoke break to just give a little context. It's the single bloodiest 24 hours since the occupation began over 40 years ago. The war Wasim is talking about is known as Operation Kastled to most Jewish Israelis and as the Gaza massacre for much of the Arab world. It started at the end of 2008 and lasted about three weeks. The conflict resulted in around 1,500 Palestinian deaths and 13 Israeli deaths. The Israeli government claimed the bombardment was to protect their country from rocket fire that Hamas had been firing into Israel and to stop weapons smuggling. Wasim's daughter, Yumna, was born just before the war. She'd been born with some difficulties breathing. And so, three days after her birth, Wasim brought his newborn daughter to a children's hospital to get some breathing tests. Her breathing, by the way, would not be an issue, but they wouldn't know that from this visit because they never had a chance to speak with the doctors. Instead, from a hospital room, he heard large explosions outside.
2: I see smoke in different areas, right? Just like large black smoke coming out from different buildings. And I heard some doctors you know, shouting in the background, uh, Israel is bombing us, Israel is bombing us. And my first instinct was to grab my kid and run.
3: He unplugged his newborn daughter from the breathing test machine and ran with her in his arms out of the hospital.
2: And I'm driving on the street as fast as I can, and people screaming, coming out of their buildings, smoke around. It felt like one of the scenes I've seen in an American movie. And I'm just driving as fast as I can to get to my apartment. I literally jumped up the stairs because there was no electricity and the elevator was broke. And my wife was just Mm. terrified. She was on on the ground and crying and just shaking so hard. And she was bleeding because, you know, post very difficult labor. And that was when, when it hit me that the war started.
3: Because Wasim worked for the Red Cross, the war meant he was working overtime, documenting what was happening on the ground.
2: I remember I used to turn my phone on just to look at the face of Yumna for a few moments um, after she went to bed and go back to work.
3: In the mornings, as he drank his usual cup of coffee, he would look out the window of his kitchen. The sunrise would be scarred by smoke and shooting lights.
2: It looks like fireworks. It used to go up in the air, you know, uh, like white smoke and it just goes down, those were phosphoric bombs, so the Israeli were bombing for weeks. All through this war, I'd never seen the Israeli soldiers. It just was this force, this um, divine force that is, for some reason, I felt, is punching us. The questions was like, why isn't anyone doing anything about it? Like, are we alone? Are we forgotten? Uh, are, we, are we left behind?
3: But there was no time to reflect. In the days after the war, he was busy with the Red Cross, investigating possible war crimes by Israel, documenting what had become of his home.
2: One of the cases that I took is the case of the Shaziai school.
3: Just a warning here, this part is particularly graphic.
2: There was a story of this family who were hiding in one room.
3: The building was bombed, and the room where the family was hiding sustained massive damage.
2: The entire wall collapsed on on all the family members, and they all died on the spot. And there's bits of these kids on the walls, little bits of the kids on the walls. You could tell. And I was—I stood there in shock. You, you, you're, you're not prepared for this. Nobody nobody tells you, oh, this is what human flesh looks like on a wall, you know? There was a girl here on this corner, and this is her flesh. I just stood there in shock for hours. I went back to the office to write a report, and I didn't know what to write. It just didn't make a sense to me. Gazze, that beautiful place that I grew up in, that used to be uh, the heart of of, uh, of our culture, turned into this very dark place. Everybody was just silent most of the time. It didn't take them long to to start rebuilding after the war, but the months that follows, when you start to realize that your friends are missing, your family members are missing, this is when it hits you the hardest. How much longer did you live in Gaza after this? I lived in Gaza until 2010. We made the decision because at that point, it um, as much as I loved Gaza and I loved the people of Gaza, I just had a kid and I could imagine her to be able to live in, in these conditions. Um, it was all or nothing. You leave a life behind my family from Beit Hanoun, my wife's family who live in Gaza, everybody, our house, our car, everything. We just left everything on and came to the West Bank.
3: Most people in Gaza don't have the option to leave.
2: I was privileged, but I don't, I don't want to speak a lot of details about this.
3: He didn't want to go on the record about this because he's afraid of getting those who helped him in trouble. But suffice to say, Wasim was able to get his family out of Gaza and they drove to Ramallah in the West Bank.
2: The moment that I crossed Eres' checkpoint, which is different, the air is different smell less, this distorted smell of phosphoric gas that was on the air for a long time and the pollution and then you go out and it's just this new smell. There was a sense of relief. I knew I'd never come back. When I got to the West Bank and arrived in Ramallah and met my mom and my father and my brother, it was like being reunited with the other parts of your body, you know, just exactly how it was like.
3: For the first time in a long time, he was optimistic. He was headed to the Palestinian de facto capital of the West Bank. Ramallah had bustling cafes and shops. The smell of fresh coffee and street food was in the air. It was loud and lively.
2: But Ramallah was different than I expected there was this strange feeling that you're not wanted here because you're from Gaza you're here taking our jobs I'm immigrant in my country supposedly even I remember I applied for a job uh, with the red Cross in, in Ramallah and they turned me down I never got a call back not even a phone call saying you know a nod as a colleague who worked through the war, we don't think you're the right person. Nobody called me at all.
3: Without a job, he was stuck living with his parents. He wanted Ramallah, but Ramallah didn't seem to want him. Even though he had just gone through a war, an event that was supposedly a Palestinian national experience, other Palestinians weren't reaching out. They didn't even seem sympathetic. There was another difference too. Living in Gaza, Wasim had only ever known Israel as a faceless enemy. To him, Israel meant bombs.
2: It just fallen in our heads. It was coming out of the sky.
3: An invisible force that put him and his family under siege, that generated water and electricity shortages. But in the West Bank, Israel had a face. Soldiers were at checkpoints. They came to raid homes in the middle of the night. They were sometimes in the streets.
2: I didn't experience any of this personal encounters with with Israeli soldiers or of the occupation until I got to the
3: West Bank. In parts of the West Bank, near Ramallah even, Israelis lived in massive gated settlements. Wasim started asking himself some basic questions for the first time. Like what did people in the West Bank mean when they talked about the occupation?
2: What is the occupation? They experienced the Antifada, being, you know, stopped on the street, going to jail for, for a long time.
3: Finally, about a year after he came to Ramallah, Wasim got a job with a peace NGO. And in order to attend a meeting in Israel, he got a permit that would allow him to cross the main checkpoint out of Ramallah.
2: The checkpoint from Kalandia, you had all these people in a very huge line trying to get inside they have a very weird name for it. They call this, the uh, term is halabat, which is basically where the cows, the cattle, go through to get milked inside the, the barn.
3: In that same way, like the cattle, he slowly went, single file, through the queue. When he reached the head of the line, he had to pass through the body scanner three times. It was manned by an Israeli soldier.
2: The last time I spoke to an Israeli directly when I crossed from Egypt to Gaza when I was a
3: kid. This time, he said, soldiers screamed at him.
2: Take off your belt. Take off your shoes. Stand still. Go back again. Go
3: back again. Just screaming at me in the broken Arabic to put my, both of my hands up. For Wasim, this was all very strange. As he walked through, he felt disconnected. This is what some Palestinians here in Ramallah went through every day. The humiliation, the fear. It wasn't anything like his experience in Gaza. He felt like a stranger in his own land. After three years of feeling like an outsider in Ramallah, Wasim took a trip that would start to change how he felt about belonging. Wasim visited Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. It's one of the holiest sites in Islam, Growing up, he had always imagined two things when he thought about being Palestinian. One, a future world map with the words State of Palestine on it. And two, the golden dome of the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound. It's not just about religion. For Wasim and for many Palestinians, the mosque is symbolic, a symbol of Palestinian identity and self-determination. But he had never gone. It was much harder for Palestinians in Gaza to get there than those in the West Bank. And even since coming to the West Bank, he had been busy trying to build a life and only rarely had a permit.
2: First time I visited the Al-Aqsa Mosque, although I'm not a very religious person in my nature, the moment that I walked inside the Laksa Mosque, I fell in tears. Your feet touch that carpet, and then you look at the walls and this beautiful mosaicas on the windows. It just it has a heavy presence.
3: He looked around and saw Palestinians from all over, from
2: Gaza, the West Bank,
3: the Palestinian diaspora,
2: Jerusalem.
3: More than most, he knew how different their struggles were in each of these places. Yet here, in this place, they had all come together, side by side.
2: It reminds you of things you've been missing, things that you want more of.
3: He felt a link between all of them, They all shared a lineage of struggle and longing for a better future. Later that day, for the first time in his life, he walked through the old city of Jerusalem. He wandered the narrow streets, touching the cold ancient stones of the buildings. And just like he had as a kid in the refugee camp, he went to the street vendors. They didn't have beans, Instead,
2: he bought the bread that they make,
3: a round bread with sesame on top. It was different from the food he had as a kid, different from the food even in Ramallah, but that difference didn't feel isolating.
2: I wanted to soak this Palestinian culture that I've been missing as a refugee for a long time. There was this strong urge to learn more about my culture, about my identity as a Palestinian.
3: For the first time since he left Gaza, for that afternoon at least, he belonged. It's been more than 10 years since Wasim first moved to Ramallah. He's continued to learn more about different Palestinian experiences. For work, he's started partnering with Palestinian citizens of Israel and learning about their unique struggles. And while he now feels part of the larger Palestinian community, he still questions where home is.
2: I still feel here that I'm a refugee.
3: When I visited his apartment in Ramallah, one of the first things we talked about was that he wasn't sure how long he would stay in the city. Going back to Gaza doesn't feel like a real option, at least not anytime soon. Not only is it still very dangerous, but the Gaza that once felt like home is no longer there. His grandparents have died, so have some of his friends. And there's the guilt that comes from being one of the few who were able to leave while others suffered.
2: There's a lot of people that I've lived behind that I haven't seen for a long time. So.
3: He has four kids now, but he almost never tells them about Gaza. He and his wife, he says, don't really talk about it either. It's like a ghost from the past. Wasim was born in the diaspora and raised in a refugee camp. He made a home in Gaza, and now lives in the West Bank. His friends like to point out to him.
2: You basically experienced every bit of the Palestinian heritage and culture at some point of your life.
3: He himself is a physical reminder of the multitude of Palestinian experiences. Sometimes that feels like belonging. Other times it feels more like looking at pictures of relatives far away.
0: Yoshi Fields.
1: Wasim now works with the Alliance for Middle East Peace, a network of organizations working for peace and equality. Wasim's work focuses on grassroots, alumni, and leadership program development. He advocates for the rights of Palestinian people, regardless of where they live. You can learn more about his work at almap.org.
0: So hearing Wasim's story, my first thought was, I hope more Jewish Israelis can hear his story. We are recording. It's May 2023 right now. We've just come out after another round of war and rocket fire and bombs between Gaza and Israel. It was just two weeks ago I was rushing down to the bomb shelter with my family, as did many in Israel— While people in Gaza were rushing to the streets because they don't have a bomb shelter to go to. And we as Israelis and Palestinians, we watch very different news channels. We see different images on social media. That means that for the majority of Jewish Israelis, they are not seeing or experiencing what's happening to people in Gaza. And I feel that part of the power of his story is letting us know what it's like to be in Gaza in those terrible, terrible moments.
1: So for me, uh, listening to Wasim's story, it really hit me from a different angle. You know, as a Palestinian citizen of Israel, it took me a long time to come in peace with my Palestinian identity. I grew up, uh, you know, with a very high sense of otherness, but really, you know, I, I always felt like I didn't suffer enough, uh, you know, because I live in Israel. I don't live under occupation, uh, under military control. Uh, I didn't feel like I was legitimate to, to uh, you know, receive a solidarity for Palestinian liberation or, 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 you know, for the suffering of my people. And listening to Wasim's story now and really resonating with it as this bigger collective experience and collective identity of Palestinian, it really made me very grateful for Wasim and for Yoshi and, and for this episode really to be able to provide this kind of complex depth of uh, Palestinian identity, which is so different than mine, but is also part of me.
0: Thank you so much for that perspective, because that's something I think I was not thinking about necessarily, you know, listening to this um as a Jewish-Israeli, but I think a lot of people listening to this will now realize like, the myriad of identities of being Palestinian. And Wassim's story also made me think about the story of refugees, which is the story of my own family, my own family fleeing from from Europe, from the Nazis, um, and and also looking for a home and looking for a place.
1: Okay, and that's our episode. We will be back in a couple of weeks with a new story. So stay tuned.
0: Groundwork is created and produced by me and Yoshi Fields. The episode was reported and produced by Yoshi Fields, with content editing by Eli Sheva Goldberg and Joel Shupak. Joel Shupak and Diva Mori scored the piece. Additional thanks to Skylar Inman and Rachel Cerati.
1: Art and design by Nick Acosta. We need your help. If you found what you just heard meaningful, if you think this kind of reporting is important, then please take a few seconds right now and rate us and give us a review on whatever platform you're using to listen. We depend on you to make these stories.
0: So make sure to subscribe, rate us, and tell your friends. This show is a joint production of New Israel Fund and the Alliance for Middle East Peace.
1: New Israel Fund is the premier funder and organizer of progressive Israeli civil society, with over 300 million dollars from tens of thousands of people to hundreds of organizations, working for change on the ground for over 40 years. The Alliance for Middle East Peace is the largest and fastest growing network of Palestinian and Israeli peace builders. You can learn more about them in their websites in nif.org and allmap.org.
0: And you can learn more about our show there or at groundworkpodcast.com. Our theme music is by Sistem Ali, a multilingual binational hip-hop group whose cultural activity is deeply rooted in the communities where they work. Original scoring in this piece comes from Deeb Amori. Additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. This episode narration was recorded by Ohad Basson.
1: Make sure to subscribe and thanks for listening.
0: Sukran al mutaba Toda.